This morning we'll be reading from Peter's first epistle, the second chapter, beginning in verse 18 and reading through the end of the chapter in verse 25. 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Please pray with me. Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth, the meditations of all our hearts, may be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. It's perhaps understandable. Carlos was 10 when he left the not-so-distant shores of Cuba and came with 10,000 other children to this land. The year was 1960, and he was one of these many children brought here just after the revolution there as part of what was known as Operation Pedro Pan, a plan that the name might cue you into, involved the bringing of children to the states to be followed later, eventually, by their parents. And Carlos had grown up in the household, as he tells it, of a rather established and influential Cuban judge. And his father had no intent of leaving that land, but his mother wished for a different life, and so she put him on a plane and sent him away with a kiss and one gift. And as he came first to Miami, and over about two to three years was shuffled from one household to another, finding himself spending a week here with a family or a month there in a shelter, or a season there with some very distant relatives who perhaps were third cousins, he carried that one gift as a reminder of home, nothing else. And it took him several years eventually to be reunited with family, not here in Florida, but up in the Midwest. And he writes in one of his memoirs, uh, entitled Learning to Die in Miami, of how he eventually found himself facing that gift. The one thing his mother had sent him with to this land, uh, the one thing that she longed for him to carry with him, it was a book. It's a well-known book. It was a Christian book. It was a book entitled The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, uh, one of the great pieces of medieval Christian literature. And 
antiquarian gift, if ever there were one, a somewhat strange gift for a mother to pass to her child. But he carried it like the precious goods that it was, and he took it from home to shelter to home, from state to state. And as you might imagine, as someone bewildered and overwhelmed, someone flummoxed and anxiety-ridden because of all the trauma that he'd undergone, leaving home and familiarity for things that were uncertain and unfamiliar, he carried that and treasured that. But it wasn't until he was older and he was in Illinois and he was reunited with family that he began reading it as he was a bit older as an adolescent. And he recounts in his memoirs, opening it for the first time and reading of the call of Christ, the call to take up your cross and to die. And he hated that book. He absolutely hated that book. He spoke of opening this treasure that his mother had entrusted to him, knowing it was the one thing she longed for him to have if she couldn't have him. And he was absolutely, utterly repulsed by every sentence. And he would open it and find himself shiver and quake and close it. And it would take several days before he could muster the courage to open it again and read, pouring over a few sentences, perhaps even a paragraph, before he found that it was abject terror, the call to take up your cross and to follow Christ. And he recounts in his memoirs how finally, eventually, after having gone through this tumultuous childhood, having grown up in a land he loved with a family that was dear to him, and then being sent off, and going several years through the uncertainty, like a foster child moving from one home to another, finally to be reunited with his mom, with siblings, finally to have some sense of settlement and of peace, only to read in what dear mom had given him that he's to give it all up, and that he's to take a cross, and he's to follow Christ to death. And he says, that's the last thing. I finally have everything I want. I can't possibly give it up. I think that's understandable. In fact, I think he puts words to what you and I often experience, if we're honest, when we open up God's word. There are portions of scripture from which we revolt, don't we? There are verses. There are calls. There are assessments that we read And we do not like. We read that there is no one who seeks the Lord in every fiber of our self-confident being. Jars. We read that we are to take up a cross and follow Jesus and that they did not receive him, they shall not receive us. And our every longing to be loved and embraced causes us to jerk back and ask if this is really wise guidance. And this is one of those texts, I think if we're honest, that we read and we reread and we consider perhaps blinking for an exceptionally long period of time as we pass our our eyes over the page and we really wonder if God means this for us. Verse 18, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And we think that doesn't really jive with the operating wisdom of our culture, of our backbone, of our very sense of self and of conscience. 
That seems strange and odd and, frankly, rather repugnant at first glance. But Peter offers this epistle, and God, through Peter, offers this word to you and I as a word that's meant to bring mercy and peace, he says at the beginning of the epistle. And he comes back at the close after he's addressed this and some other rather hard sayings that we oftentimes choke over, and he again sums them up as a word of mercy and a word of peace. And so this morning, I want to spend some time with you looking at these verses, at this text from which probably all of us, if we linger over it, struggle with difficulty to embrace what it would actually mean for us. And to ask instead, how is this a call to embrace God's mercy? And how is this an invitation to know and to linger in God's peace? in a way that's markedly different from what Carlos described, and in a way that I suspect is different from how we so often approach God's word and God's call to us from Christ. Three things I think we see here. First, we see this very stark command, and it's a command to endure graciously in the midst of a difficult situation. You see this in verses 18 to 20. This is the second of three statements in this passage to submit oneself to another person, to someone who is in a position of authority. Just before this, of course, there's a statement to submit oneself to governmental and political authorities when they are not treating one uh, as one deserves or as one ought to be respected and cared for. Just after this, There's a passage regarding wives and husbands and how, in this case, it seems a wife of a non-Christian husband, a husband who is likely still pagan and not encouraging of the wife's faith, how she's not to flee him, she's not to shirk him, she's not to look down on him even, but she's to patiently love him as a wife, even though he makes it, it seems, rather difficult for her to be faithful to Christ, to be a part of the Christian community. It's a real issue in the first century when many women are are converting from paganism. Here, we look not to the realm of politics, nor to the realm of family and marriage, but to business, to commerce. We address the situation of masters and slaves, or of employers and employees, of bosses and servants, as it were. And again, there is an authority structure and there's a call to submit to the one who bears authority over you. Submit yourself or be subject, perhaps, to your master with all respect. Well, that's no big deal. Be subject to the one in in charge of you. Show care and concern for the one who has authority over you, who's above you in the organizational chart, the one to whom you report. No big deal until you get to that second line, not only to the good and gentle, but even to the unjust. Now we revert. Now we are questioning the wisdom of this because this speaks of someone who does not seek to make your job easier, more enjoyable, does not seek your flourishing and your peace, but someone who seeks to use others for their own benefit. That's the biblical definition of someone who is unjust, is someone who happily inconveniences others for their own sake. 
whereas biblical justice is someone who happily inconveniences themselves for the sake and the benefit of others. You're to graciously endure and be subject even to this boss. Assumedly, someone who is not a Christian, assumedly someone who is specifically targeting you, perhaps for your faith, and making life difficult. You're to take up your cross. Now notice, of course, this follows what we looked at last week in verses 4 to 12. And in particular, as we looked at verses 9 and 10, where we were identified as a chosen race, right? a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We were named as people who have been set apart by God, called by God, and given a task and a, a purpose by God to mediate and to proclaim his name unto the nations. And we saw then in verses 11 and 12 that that involves this call to live honorably among the Gentiles. Even though we are holy, set apart, we are not set to the side as it were, but we're to live amongst the Gentiles and we're to do so in a way that honors them. We're not to view our election, our salvation as something that puts us in a standoffish sort of position or a superior position but rather a position of service and a position of care, and in particular, a position of proclamation. What we have is meant to be taken to them. And that border that marks us off and sets us apart from them is a porous and permeable border. And we seek to draw others in by proclaiming the name of Christ going out. And here we see that our humble, patient endurance of mistreatment in the workplace is meant to be a conduit of that proclamation. Just as our humble, gracious endurance of bad political leaders, just as our humble, gracious endurance in marriage relationships where one is not supportive of your spiritual faithfulness, that those situations are situations and occasions for proclaiming the greatness of God and of Christ. Now, a couple things we've got to note. This is not a justification for Christian employers to be jerks or unjust. This is a word about a reality that in that day and place would be such that Christians aren't likely to be the masters or the employers. I mentioned it last week. In, in this first century setting, Neri is the Christian who's in a position of political or cultural influence. Uh, This is addressing a people who are, by and large, in positions of, of weakness, right? When we consider how do we live faithfully, how do we live obediently and well, when we do find ourselves in positions of influence, as God does bring to pass, both in the first century, in exceptional circumstances, centuries before that in the Old Testament, whether it's Abraham, who had many riches, or David, who ruled a kingdom, or in centuries past, after the time of the Bible, those Christians who found themselves in positions of political leadership, or of economic influence, or of social influence, how do we exercise that faithfully? This is not the text for that. You can look to texts like Ephesians 6, where we see the call to obey in the Lord and to rule in the Lord, that we're to exercise authority and power such as it might be given to us in different ways 
for the Lord's sake and in the Lord's ways. This is a word not justifying the powerful, but a word offering comfort and guidance and wisdom for those who lack power. This is a word for those of us who are followers. And we ought to note, this perhaps jars with the way in which we oftentimes talk about advancing in the Christian life. I mentioned briefly last week, there's something of an irony in that most Christian discipleship programs and churches are built around the idea of leadership training, which is a glorious thing in one respect, that Christians are called to take leadership, they're called to disciple others, and thus everyone who's trained by someone older than them ought to eventually be training those younger than them in the faith. But there's also something terribly misleading about that, in that the majority of Christians and the majority of circumstances in their lives aren't leaders, according to biblical parameters and expectations. And more often than not, most of us are called to learn to live and model this kind of lifestyle, occasionally leading and having influence and power, but more often than not, offering patient, humble service and care when we are not the masters of the universe, when we are not the movers and the shakers, knowing how to do so with poise, with faithfulness, with integrity, with graciousness, and with a deep and profound commitment to the truth. That's terribly difficult. And passages like this call us to that task. And that task is not just for your own good, but notice the command to endure graciously is for the good of others. We see this twice. As he calls them in verses 18 to 20, in verse 19 he says, for this is a gracious thing. And in verse 20 again, he says, If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, some might think that suggests that when you endure under mistreatment, it is by God's grace that you endure, that you persevere. That's a biblical idea. That's beautiful. That's essential. That's true. There are other texts that speak of the fact that our endurance and perseverance is owing to God's commitment to us, his provision to us. But that's almost surely not what Peter is saying right here. Peter is not saying, when you endure, look behind that and before that and see God graciously providing. That's true, but his focus is actually on what occurs after and because of your enduring. He's rather saying, your enduring is itself a gracious thing, or that is a gift to others. When you endure faithfully and humbly and graciously before those who mistreat you, you are testifying to them and to those around you. And you are in that moment a means of God giving unto them, giving unto them truth, and giving truth unto them in a loving manner, in a way that adorns and displays the gospel that it commends. It's one thing to hear that God is a God of grace. It's another thing to hear of the God of grace through someone whose life is marked by graciousness flowing forth from meeting and knowing that God of grace. And so he's speaking here and calling us to that deep and profound purpose that we talked about last week, that our election is for service, just like Abraham, who was promised so many things as the elect child of God and who was to be a blessing to the nations. So we, as the elect exiles of the dispersion, 
as we're named at the beginning of this epistle, so we are chosen and saved by God to proclaim his mercies and to extend his grace through our graciousness and our testimony to the ends of the earth, even to those who mistreat us. There's a second thing we see here as he presses on from this radical call and command to describe Christ's example for us in verses 21 to 24. These are remarkable verses. We read this, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Notice verse 21. This is your calling. We often speak of calling in different ways. We talk sometimes of how God calls you unto himself and unites you to Christ by faith, and that's where your salvation is found. And it's God's call that initiates that. It's never our idea. We don't approach God before God has already planned out and pursued us. And that's a wonderful biblical way of talking about calling. Or we talk about calling oftentimes in terms of vocation and how we are personally meant to serve in the kingdom for the glory of God and the good of our neighbor. Right? And that's a, a perfectly good and biblical notion. Here it's saying suffering is your calling as a Christian. There are lots of different vocations you may have. Right? To be a parent, to be a single person, to be a teacher, to be a trash collector, Right? to serve in public office, to uh, marshal riches for the sake of blessing others with it and dispensing it out to them, or to the calling of being a, a rather meagerly wealthy person, somewhat impoverished, and to bear it with graciousness and care. Lots of different callings our lives might take, but here's one that is universal, the calling that we read in the New Testament to suffer with Christ. We don't know whether we shall be rich or poor, but we do know we're called to be content and we're called to bear it as Christ did. And here, this calling gets described in two ways by the example of Christ. He says, this is that which you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. So it notes... As you look at the work of Christ and the suffering of Christ, it's not only done on your behalf and in your place, but also, in addition to that, to show you how to live and to show you how to die. He's an example. And lest we think that's a a perfect example that we could never even remotely approximate, and so we're not really supposed to try and follow it. We're just supposed to look at it and realize how bad we are and then be grateful that he forgives us. He goes on and he says, he leaves you an example so that you might follow in his steps. It's an example, and as an example, it's a gift to you, and as an example, it's really setting forth what God expects you to progress in doing and to persevere in doing. Not perfectly, but consistently, that you are 
to follow Christ's example. And we see here this described in remarkable negative terms, right? He doesn't commit sin. Deceit's not in his mouth. When he gets reviled or mocked, and you remember the the mockery, the irony of it, that they mock him for being king of the Jews when he's king of the whole world. But he doesn't revile. He doesn't mock back. He stands quiet. When he's threatened and suffers, he doesn't threaten in return. In fact, you remember the jeers and the threatenings. You remember him saying he was able to help others. He was able to raise Lazarus. Save himself. Call down angels from heaven. And he stood still. But for the prayer, asking God to forgive them, for they knew not what they did. Right? Many things he didn't do. He didn't sin. He didn't express anger. He didn't lash out. He didn't get his. He didn't ensure that things worked out to his benefit. One positive thing it says he does. He continued entrusting himself to his father. Jesus stood there and hung there by faith. We see this, of course, in Hebrews 12. You remember Hebrews 11, speaking of one saint after another from the Old Testament. Abram, who went out from his land by faith, obeying God's call, as we read in Genesis 12.1. Rahab, by faith, turning her back on her own people, aiding the spies from Israel, knowing that God will give the city unto them. And innumerable others mentioned at the end of that chapter who by faith obeyed the Lord. And it's crucial to see that in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Jesus is the climactic example of faith. That we read there that mindful of that great cloud of witnesses, we are to run the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, it reads. He is the one who is the initiator, the designer, the author of faith, and he's the one in whom it has found its perfection because he's the one who, we read, endured the cross, despising its shame for the joy set before him. He wasn't a masochist. He didn't enjoy it. He wasn't impervious or unaware of it. No, he despised the shame. When they mocked him as king, when they put a crown of thorns upon his head, when they jeered him and his ability to save himself like he'd saved others, he despised it. He was a man of sorrows, we read. But he stood there. He didn't get off. He didn't walk away. He didn't flee the scene. He didn't exit stage right. He hung there for the joy set before him. Think about that odd statement. Set before him. The end was set before him. He was soon to die. This is the means of execution than which none more horrific has been devised. And we've tried. This was a means of execution so effective that a Roman couldn't suffer it. And the Romans weren't nice people. Set before him joy. He was able to endure that cross, despising that shame, because he knew that the death that was set before him wasn't the end of the story, because he knew and trusted that his father would raise him in the Spirit's power. He hung there by faith, and that's how he perfected 
faith to the bitter end, without sin, without deceit, without reviling, without threatening, hanging there in the midst of the worst of it for you and for me. He continued entrusting himself, Peter says, to his father. And so as we look at the example of Christ, we look not simply at one who's done it perfectly, but at one who's done it perfectly in the way we're called to do it. Not in a position of power, but of the fragile, frail, human, finite position of one who's called to walk by faith day by day. And so we look back at what we see in verses 18 to 20. And we see that we're not just told to endure and to be subject to those, not just the good and gentle, but even the unjust, but that we're to do so mindful of God. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. God doesn't call you to be a masochist. God doesn't call you to be aloof from what's going on. God doesn't call you to anything that somehow is out of step with the reality of your situation. But he calls you to be mindful of him. And being mindful of him to endure this intermediate, tiny, fleeting, vaporous journey with all its struggles and agonies, with all its pains and losses, just like Christ, knowing that joy is set before us. Being mindful of God. It's a curious phrase. It it can speak really of two different things. Being cognizant of God and aware of God, being alert to God. You have a fever perhaps, but until you actually take your temperature, you're not alert or aware of it. Your body hasn't changed, but your state of mind has. You're now cued in to what's already the reality. Being mindful of God doesn't mean summoning God into your presence in a way he wasn't before, but being awake and alive and alert to the fact that he's there. He's at the ready. But being mindful of God also speaks of being full of God and being cognizantly full of God of knowing that he is present, of knowing that he is there, of knowing that he's not abandoned you and he's not aloof to your situation. He doesn't look askance from afar, but that he's, as Augustine puts it, nearer to us than we are to ourselves. Look at verse 25. You were straying like sheep. You were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Two titles that we find throughout the New Testament addressing leaders of churches, shepherd or pastor, overseer or bishop, a ruler. It speaks to the care of the farm, as it were, in the plains, of one who pastors or watches over a flock, and it speaks to the rule and governance of a political entity. Jesus is our authority in both cases. And we had strayed from that authority. We had gone out from amongst it. We had fled the flock, as it were, and we had left the city and the community. But we've returned. That's a rather fascinating word for these people. This epistle begins by addressing the elect exiles of the dispersion, those who've been cast out, those who, like Carlos in that story, are no longer home. 
Those who feel as though they're in a foreign land. Those who day by day experience that kind of break with reality that was expressed in our pastoral prayer. The sense that there's good and there's such struggle. Those who wrestle with that on a seemingly daily basis. That's what it means to be an exile. It means to be cast out from what's familiar, from what's settled. That's what it means to be in the dispersion, to be scattered, to be spewed out. We had a a massive rain two days ago in Orlando. I trust you perhaps experienced a bit of that here. And nothing is more frustrating to someone who's not particularly good in caring for a lawn than what a massive rain can do to things like mulch and such, spewed and cast all over, right? And so I found myself the next day looking at my front yard after we tried to do it right. We tried to put in new mulch. We tried to create that great divide between the mulch and the grass. We tried to order it. We tried to segment it. And then the rain came, and it scattered and it spewed it all over. Right? It's not right. It's disordered. It's frankly rather ugly. And we feel that in our lives. We feel that we've been cast out, that the rains have pushed us off. We feel that things are disordered. They're, they're, they're not the way that we, and probably much more deeply, God has intended them. But notice this word, this verb, we've returned. What would that mean to these people, these exiles, to those dispersed, to return? You know the feeling when you leave on a trip, eager for what might be, perhaps worried about what might come, curious about what shall be enjoyed or suffered. You know that feeling of return. When having been on a long journey, having been in unfamiliar territory, having to sort of play it by ear, having to adjust to different situations and scenarios outside the normal course of events, you finally are able to return to the rhythm and the order of what is normal. What joy and peace, what mercy that would be for these people to be told that though you're exiles and though you're dispersed, that is not the only or deepest reality of your lives. You have returned already. And though your address is not the one you would have imagined, your calling is precisely where God would have you that you have been called to this and you have returned to his pastoral oversight and care. And that means that wherever you are, however far you've been scattered or dispersed, he is with you and you go it not alone. I want to read a few words to you from later in Carlos's second memoir when he returned some years later in adolescence to that horrific text the imitation of Christ. And he writes of it in this way. He speaks of a time where he was worried and concerned and somewhat anxiety-ridden, and in desperation he opened the book, sort of a last attempt at finding sanity. So I open the imitation of Christ at random. My eyes spot this passage. Be prepared for the fight, then, if you wish to gain the victory. 
If you desire to be crowned, fight bravely and bear up patiently. Without labor, there's no rest, and without fighting, no victory. I'm astonished. For the first time ever, this book is speaking to me, and what it says makes sense. This has to be a fluke. So I put the wretched text to the test again. I flip the pages back and forth, back and forth, and settle on a spot toward the back of the book. Another passage that makes sense. No way. This, too, is mere coincidence. One more time, I flip the pages back and forth and find yet another text that speaks to me. This is too weird. Maybe there's something to this book. Maybe. Just maybe. And the next thing I know, I'm not just opening it random, but reading it from front to back, little by little. The more sense it makes, the more I read and the more confused I get. What's wrong with me? This is crazy. Maybe I'm crazy. How can everything I've feared for so long now seem incredibly sweet and so much like the key that unlocks all the secrets of the universe? I read the book gingerly at first, much like someone on the bomb squad might handle an explosive device. But before long, I'm deeply immersed in it, nodding in agreement, even with the most repulsive of passages, which ask me to embrace suffering and to hanker for a cross like those of Jesus or Spartacus. Everything changes from top to bottom. A veil rips loudly and light pours through and nothing looks the same. For the first time in my life, I feel as if I'm master of my own destiny, not because I think more highly of myself, just the opposite. Accepting my limitations is key. So is accepting it as an unquestionable fact that this higher power is eager to help me overcome whatever the world throws at me, both from without and from within. It's close to Easter, he writes. My mind is reeling, and so are my heart and will. I'm in bizarro world now, where everything is the opposite of what it should be. I'm no longer who I was a couple months before, and neither is the world itself. Jagged is smooth, bitter is sweet, sorrow is joy, dark is light, black is white. The unseen illumines what's seen. Absurdity rescues logic. Love of self leads to anguish. Self-loathing leads to elation. Abstinence becomes the highest thrill of all. Praying becomes the only conversation that makes sense. Believing becomes as natural and unstoppable as breathing. Doubting becomes as unsurprising as exhaling. Forgiving becomes the only sensible option. Temptation drops its mask. Remorse claims its crown. Loss loses its sting. Pain gains its wings. Now becomes forever. Forever begins now. Forever. Carlos embraced that repulsive word as sweet and saving because he knew forever, with all its promise, peace, and mercy, was here already, and he needn't fight for it. And Peter tells these exiles and you and I in all our scattered existence, that we have already returned to the pastor and overseer of our souls. May we, like them, hear this call to endure with graciousness and truth, even the unjust treatment that we bear up, like Jesus. Let's pray and ask his care.